and they're really they're they're really sweet people. They're they're lovely. It seemed for one like for one moment it seemed that that I would be able to dance with Beyonce at midnight, but then like at 11:58 like a it was like poof like a cloud and and they were and they were gone. You're listening to the Taste Podcast. I'm editor in chief Matt Rodbard here with senior editor Anna Hiesel. Today on the show, we have Lori Wooliver, a journalist, humorist, and a co-host of the Carb Face podcast, Shout a podcast out, that I love. Podcast. Hilarious podcast. Also on the show, we have Ryan Angulo and Doug Kroll, the duo behind the new cookbook, Salt and Kindness. But Matt, tell me a little bit about Lori. Love Lori Wooliver. I've known her for years. She is a fresh and highly original voice in the food writing game. And she also hosts this great podcast, the Carb Face podcast, with... Chris Thornton, a.k.a. Shit Food Blogger. You should check him out on Twitter, at Shit Food Blogger. He will rock your world, blow your mind, maybe insult you. What is Lori working on now? What is she writing anything? What is she up to? Lori uh, was Anthony Bourdain's longtime assistant, and she's working on um, a, a Bourdain book project, which we talk about. And, you know, she's writing all the time. She's written a few stories for Taste, and I think I, I just kind of wanted to write more for Taste. That's, that's all i got to say. Here's Matt talking to Lori. Lori Wolver, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here, and it's nice to be on someone else's podcast. I know, and we can talk about the Carb Face Podcast soon, and I'm a huge fan of it, so we will get into that. But you've been a private cook, a nanny, a caterer, a freelance writer, a bus girl, a copywriter, a farmhand, video store clerk, and editor at Art Culinaire and Wine Spectator. Lori, the question is, what job did you hate the most? Oh, um, well, my worst job that I hated the most was at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. I was an intern. And so sometimes we would do things like mow the lawns or, you know, cut down long grass with like a scythe. I knew that I wasn't going to be an urban gardener, yeah. you know, pretty much when I, when I got there and was like, oh, I, I hate the, the work part of it. What about the private chefing job what who were you cooking for those were fun more fun jobs uh the first one was two years and it was for a family in manhattan that was very wealthy um and fairly eccentric um nobody nobody well i don't know if they're high profile or not but i'm not going to say their names uh but it was a great education in new york a specific type of upper west side wealth and uh you know, shopping at places like Citarella every day and Zabar's and Fairway was such a mind-blowing experience with like for an un, me. Like with, with a credit card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Um, and, you know, working in this gorgeous penthouse apartment on the 32nd floor and, um, you know, all of this, it was it was um, intoxicating. And it was – and the the cooking part was actually – not that exciting because I didn't know how to cook really. I knew how to do some basic stuff, but I hadn't been to cooking school. Uh, but this was a family that was very interested in having like low fat. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was the '90s, so it was all yeah. about the low fat. So they wanted low fat meals, simple and calorie controlled, and so I was able to do that. I wanted to dive into your your background because it's really diverse. You've got mm-hmm. a lot of cool things. You and then I mentioned art culinary and wine spectator, so you ended mm-hmm. up. In, in a career in journalism while long time serving as Anthony Bourdain's assistant. And I want to know how 
did these experiences inform your journalism? Sure. Well, so, I mean, those were separate times. I mean, I, I did the two editing jobs and then I went to work for Tony. Yeah. Uh, but uh, how did the how did my whole sort of weird checkered career totally. inform my journalism? Oh, that's a good question. I love your journalism, and I wanted to oh. have you on the podcast to talk about your style. Well, I don't. I, first of all, I, I, I kind of don't consider myself a journalist, but it's bah. nice of you to bah. to say. I mean, I you know I try and be uh, accurate, and you know get, make sure everything is fact checked, and you know do all the things that a journalist should do. But um, I, I don't know. I guess it's semantics. Um, yeah, I guess just being a generalist and having all of these different job experiences is is helpful in being able to talk to a variety of people and in sort of thinking beyond, you know, the usual suspects. Um, you know, I've got a great, uh, I want to say a Rolodex, but I haven't used a Rolodex in, <laughs> in years. Uh, but I have a great, you know, contact list from, you know, uh, a 20, now 22 years, um, twenty almost 23 years since I moved to New York and started working as an adult. Uh, so yeah, I, I think just being in contact with a variety of people and not just being sort of narrowly focused on food and restaurants um, has been has been helpful um, to kind of expand. What do you like to write about? Like, what what really gets you excited in terms of like food journalism? Uh, and I'm using that word. I apologize. Yeah, no, it's fine. Um, you know, I have to say, like around this time last year, I started to get incredibly sick of writing about food and uh, just sort of felt like there's there's nothing new or the things that are being written about are not things that I'm interested in. And then I, it seems like things have really changed and taken people are able to write a, a suddenly there's this market for uh, more political food writing or more personal food writing or, or food writing that somehow involves issues of mental health and general health. Um, so that's in theory, that's all really interesting to me. Uh, but mostly I'm, I'm in kind of a, a, a travel headspace because of this book that I'm working on. So my food writing, as you've probably noticed, as I keep not pitching and saying, oh, sorry, I don't have time, uh, has sort of fallen by the wayside because I'm so travel focused right now. Uh, but in general, I do, I, you know, I, I find that personal essays are are kind of where it's at for me right now. Let's talk about the two uh, Anthony Bourdain book projects you're working on. You're working on a travel book and another another book. Just, I'm really curious what those what those are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first one uh, is a travel book that we started working on together before Tony died. Uh, it is going to be sort of an atlas of the world according to Anthony Bourdain. So it's not completely comprehensive, but it's the places in the world that he loved, uh, you know, from his extensive uh, 15 or 20 years of world travel for television. So it won't be every geography he's been to. And then even within those geographies, it won't be every single thing that he tried. It was, it, you know, we sat down and uh, did sort of about a year ago, did sort of a stream of consciousness conversation where I just listed off all these geographies. And he, off the top of his head, talked about the places that really resonated with him. Do you have that recorded? I do. Recorded and, yeah, oh, transcribed. Wow. And Amazing work. That that's been my kind of um, uh, my touchstone document in in making this book happen because unfortunately I no longer have access to Tony and so I've had to really kind of lean heavily on that. Uh, but I also have obviously the 
uh, resources of his uh, TV production company, Zero Point Zero, and his books, and you know the the nine uh, years that I worked closely with him as his assistant. What was the first country he, that came out of his mouth when you're like, we're doing this freeform brainstorm? Well, it wasn't so much like I I had a list um, mm-hmm. that just went sort of I think it was organized by probably I don't know. I think, well, the first one we talked about was Japan, but it was just because I started with Asia. Um, and obviously, he was a huge uh, love. He loved Japan and went um, a number of times uh, for the show. Um, he, uh, in the last four or five years, he took me along on uh, on one shoot per year. I, I got to chose the, choose the location. And uh, so twice in the, in the four or five years that we did that, I went to Japan with him, and uh, it was such a such a thrill to see him loving Tokyo in particular so much. And uh, the first night we were in Tokyo, we went the other the crew hadn't arrived yet; they were still back in another location. And so, just the two of us went out to dinner in uh, in Shinjuku, in the neighborhood in Tokyo. And his true uh, just excitement and happiness at having this simple you know, yakitori and beer. And then we went and got some ramen. And then we kind of ambled around the Golden Guy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, just, All those tiny little bars in Golden yeah, Guy. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was something that, you know, of, of all the experiences I had with him, this was something I'll, it was really, really special. His first episode ever for Cook's Tour was in Tokyo, right? I think so, yeah, yes. I remember yeah. that, that old footage. It's mm-hmm. just amazing to see. And so you have a second book you're working on, as well as the the, the Atlas, which sounds incredible. I can't wait to read it. That's What's right. the second book? The second book is going to be an oral biography. Uh, so uh, what some people have said, oh, you're going to? It's just a recorded document, you know? And it's, and it's I didn't I, even before the project started, I wasn't even sure what an oral biography was. Um, so. Uh, what it is is, uh, in my case, it's it's interviews and people telling stories about Tony, people that knew him from all sort of ends of his life, uh, starting with people who knew him as a child and as a teenager all the way up through uh, the end of his life. Uh, so people telling their stories about him and trying to – I mean, there's plenty about his life that's out there. I mean, he wrote Kitchen Confidential, you know, which pretty much covers the first – 44 years of his life, and then he followed up with the nonfiction uh, Medium Raw, which tells, you know, some later stories. So the challenge is, you know, how do we tell these other stories? How do we tell the fuller picture of Tony? And it's been amazing. And this is somebody that I thought I knew fairly well. And each one of the interviews that I've done so far has revealed some new side of him or some mm. some wrinkle to the story. I mean, I think anyone that tells stories for a living and especially talks about themselves kind of gets their their own story kind of um, well practiced, and and maybe some of the the details get polished off. And so there are some things that I thought to be absolutely true about Tony that I've have found are, are, you know, maybe that wasn't the complete story, the one that he was telling. So it's been really um, a nice way to kind of work through my grief. And, yeah, I was uh, going to ask you, how are you doing by, by, by having um, all these stories and all these sessions kind of enter your world? I mean, that must be really challenging. Y- yes and no. I mean, you know, the, the, the day that he died, obviously everything changed, but um, I, it's been kind of a comfort to continue to work, if not exactly with him, then, you know, with his voice and with his stories and with the people who knew him. So it's kind of a nice transition. I'm looking at it as a transition period, you know, where I'll finish these two projects and, uh, you know, still have this, this sense of being immersed in him. And, you know, when they're 
done. I don't really know what's next for me, but I will feel it would have been very difficult and strange to, you know, the day he died to kind of say, all right, well, I'm done with that. Let me go look for a job, you know, Um, which I'm sure went through your mind because, you know, it's a lot of lot of grief. And that yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of pressure on yourself. Yeah, it's I mean, it's been terrifying in some ways. You know, I had a lot of security working for him. He was a generous employer and. uh you know, it was. It's definitely been a huge adjustment um, to to go from being a, a salaried employee with benefits to a essentially a freelance writer. Um, I mean, you know, books are not huge money makers. I'm I'm fine, you know, but it's no, um, they're not. They're it's absolutely a, not. It's a different, you know, it's it's a different mindset to be thinking. Okay, well, I have to finish. I have to do this work, but I also have to be thinking six, nine, twelve months ahead. Like, what's my next thing going to be? Because I, you know, rent comes due every month. Absolutely. And but but I wanted to talk to you also about your own work because you've got um, such an eye for for detail and you've got a cool style. And I wanted to ask you about the taste story that you wrote last year. Cook the whole damn heart. <laughs> Cook the whole damn heart. It was a really mm-hmm. great story. It was very popular on taste. What 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 was that story about? Tell us. Well, it was about cooking hearts. Um, I've always, since cooking school, been really interested in organ meats. Um, uh, you know, back then, this was 1998. Uh, they were not they were not hugely popular the way that I think they kind of are now. Uh, uh, but somebody had given me a book uh, called Unmentionable Cuisine, and it just absolutely captured my attention and my my imagination. This idea that there were so many other edible parts of animals and things in the world that you could eat that weren't just, you know, packaged uh, pork chops and chicken breasts. Uh, so I've always had this interest in organ meats. Um, I, of course, we had a, a unit on it in uh, <laughs> in cooking school. Yeah. Um, and I... I uh, I pitched a I started to to put together the idea of an organ meat cookbook several years ago, and at the time the market I don't know I just I was easily dissuaded uh, by a by an agent who I thought now I realize had kind of a lack of vision. Um, Ooh, <laughs> not on your payroll anymore. Yeah, um, but uh, but so this is something that's always been interesting to me, and so when when I was pitching you stories, I thought, well, heart, you know, I mean, it's it's a and it is a muscle. It's actually not an organ, but it gets lumped in with mm. with organ meats and awful, um, and it's you know it's delicious and it's it's a beef heart, you know, high protein and and cheaper than you know your average steak cut. And thinly slicing the mm-hmm. beef heart, so you're taking a large beef heart, which is yep. the size of a human heart, pretty close, right? I mean, it's a bigger, I'd say. Bigger, yeah, yeah. I guess you're right. I'm, I've never actually <laughs> held a human heart, thank God. Um, so larger than a human heart. Thank you for correcting my lack of knowledge, but um, you're thin, slicing it thin, mm-hmm. and then you're kind of soaking in a bunch of great sauce. What was mm-hmm. the, the recipe that you developed? It was a red Thai curry, so oh, super man. simple. It was, uh, you know, the uh, red Thai curry paste that you can buy in, in uh, your your various markets. And uh, there was some coconut milk and some shallots. Um, I don't have the recipe in front of me. I know there were a few other ingredients, but it was pretty simple. I think it was like a five-ingredient recipe, a little cilantro, um, and maybe some garlic. I think you had it in there. Um, and then, you know, lettuce wraps if you want to go that way or rice or whatever. Um, it 
in some ways is very similar to um, venison, which is something that I have um, a fair amount of experience with. My dad is a, a lifelong outdoorsman and, and hunter, and so there's always uh, you know a venison roast being passed to me whenever I visit my family. And that is an extremely lean meat, and it can be sort of um, – have that iron tang to it. Uh, so it's really desirable. I kind of love that. Yeah, recently. you know, I mean, it's ward off your anemia. Yeah, uh, I love it. but it can be challenging. I mean, yeah. it's not. You know, you're not. If you're expecting to to bite into something that tastes like a ribeye steak, you're going to be disappointed, and you have to sort of know what to do with it. So marinades can be key. Or, you know, grinding it up with uh, with something that's fatty, you know, with some pork fat or just with some, some bacon, um, you know, something to kind of balance that out. And, you know, so thinly slicing it is, is good. Or, you know, roasting it um, really rare, you know, sear it on the outside and, and, and cook it so it's just bloody. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. And then you just throw some salt on it. Yeah. And do yeah, it that yeah. way. Mm. When we were talking about this interview, I wanted to get your thoughts on some um, topics you had strong opinions about. <laughs> yep. You gave me a long list, and I love this. So I wanted to go over a few of these. Sure. Um, in no order. Let's talk about pigs in a blanket. Strong opinions, oh, Lori Wolver. Yes. Well, I just was at a New Year's Eve party at my friend's restaurant in Queens called Queensboro. Uh, and the, sh- the chef there is Tony Liu, who people may know from um, – in, in New York may know from Mirandi or Babo, uh, Danielle. He's a really talented guy, and he's also a friend and a neighbor. Um, so he made uh, these pigs in a blanket, which were made – basically made with full-size Franks instead of the little cocktail wieners or Vienna sausages that you expect – and uh, oh man, were they good? They were just so. And it was like, oh, this is actually this. This is the ratio that I want. I want this much hot dog to to dough. And he put some uh, poppy seeds on the outside, and they were just fantastic. So even though in our book, uh, the book that I wrote with Tony called Appetites, a cookbook, we advocate for just buying the ones from the freezer section, which are generally the the cocktail size. I'm, if you're going to make your own, I'm, I am all about the full-sized Frank, and you just slice them up so they're still a bite-sized uh, canopy. So you're taking like maybe three bites per full-sized Frank? Yeah, depending on the size of your mouth. I'd yeah, say maybe yeah. you know anywhere from three to five uh, pieces. Indeed. I love that look. Tell me, uh, you, you, told, you had on this list grocery store ham. <laughs> yes. Grocery store ham. Yes. What, what's that up with that? That was also on my mind. Uh, well, I'm not. I mean, I do not want to in any way denigrate the beautiful, you know, heritage hams and fancy hams and you know, excellent quality uh, pork that you can get all around the country. But uh, on New Year's Day, uh, a friend cooked a just a straight up cheap grocery store ham. You know, Hickory Farms or I don't know what the brand was, but um, it was. You know, I'm probably pumped full of all kinds of water and liquids and hormones and who knows what. And it was the best goddamn ham. It was just so – and all she did was put the, the – I think it was the glaze that came with the package. So I just kind of want to say like if you can't afford the fancy heritage or you don't – whatever, you're not inclined to go that way, grocery store ham is still pound for pound just fucking delicious. American ham. It's yeah. part of our heritage. It's fucking yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk – Anna and I, my, uh, Anna Hiesel, my colleague and co-host of Taste Podcast, actually differed on this when we talked about it ahead of this interview. Um, the idea of the poor man's whatever, you don't think mm-hmm. it's punching down when you say, I make no. the poor man's lobster. I think Anna – and we can talk about it with her later – disagreed, but – I'm on the fence. Mm, mm-hmm. I think it's hard to write the words "poor man's anything," but you, but you have a different opinion. 
Well, I don't know, maybe it's an age thing or a generational thing, but, you know, I grew up uh, with my, my mother made two great dishes. Actually, well, there's one in particular, poor man's shrimp. And uh, my dad, again, an outdoorsman and also a, 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 you know, fisherman, would go ice fishing in the winter and get perch. Or we would get he would get lake perch in the summer and, you know, stick them in the freezer. But I remember it as a winter dish. And it was poor man's shrimp. And it was basically um, poached perch uh chilled and and dipped in and dipped in cocktail sauce or if she would serve it warm we would dip it in warm butter and um you know i was aware that shrimp is really expensive and i grew up in you know a landlocked upstate new york and you know we just didn't get shrimp maybe once in a blue moon at a restaurant but shrimp was not something that was in our world but we could have the experience of shrimp with uh, with this perch. And I'm not in any way positing that my family was poor. We were very, you know, comfortably middle class, but we were also extremely budget conscious and extremely, you know, we, we, we weren't we weren't rich, you know, um, I mean, money was was valuable. So to me, it was like a point of pride, like, look at this cool thing that we can have, you know, we don't have shrimp, it's not part of our world, but we have this, you know, and to me, shrimp was and remains kind of a fancy thing, you know. So I don't see the tradition of calling something poor man's something else when it comes to food, I don't see that as punching down. Pejorative, yeah. I don't see that as something that's uh, – I, I see it as a point of pride for people who say, well, we don't have this, but we have this, and let's make something delicious out of it. I think – I think I, you know, I've been trying to you – know, in preparing for this conversation, I've been trying to find – some somebody else who can maybe say it more um, articulately than myself, sort of the etymology of, of poor man's um, uh, fill in the blank food. Um, and I haven't really found that much writing about it. So maybe this, there's something to be uh, written about. Yeah. And I, and I know that, you know, language is always evolving and our understanding of the way that we use language is constantly evolving. And there are things that we would say five years ago that we don't say now. I'm not ready to say that poor man's is in the category of things that are um, – you know, no longer uh, appropriate to say. I just think there's such a long history of, you know, depression cooking and, you know, the Italian cucina povera. Like I just, I just, I, I'm, you know, again, I don't, I don't have a lot of academic references to back me up, but I'm, I'm willing to go to the mat for a poor man. You bring up a great point about. Uh, you spoke earlier about the evolution of food writing in the past uh, five years or so, and then the idea that we are moving away as as food food writers and journalists, et cetera, from certain words and lazy mm-hmm. terms and ethnic food being acceptable mm-hmm. and all these. And 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 are you are you feeling like it's a it's a new day right now a little bit? Yeah, yeah, I think that. There are more um, there are more outlets than ever. First of all, so there used to be kind of this very narrow. Uh, there was a lot of gatekeeping when it came to food journalism. So true. Were like you know a couple of major print outlets. You know the web didn't get a lot of respect, and it was like it just was impossible to kind of break in, or it felt impossible to break in. Uh, so now there being so many more outlets, and there just being this kind of ongoing conversation about. You know, there is more room at the table than there used to be. And if you're not seeing the kind of writing that you want or that reflects your experience, you can do it yourself, you know, or you can. And and it seems like editors are starting to catch up and assign stories that are far more interesting and far more uh, reflective of a larger American experience. Um, 
and, and you know, and then and the stories that aren't necessarily about food, but are about the the labor experience of of working in restaurants or even of being a food writer. I mean, I you know, I, I'm more sympathetic to the plight of of people working in restaurants than you know. I feel like food writing is a choice, and uh, it's important, but it's I don't know. I don't know that there should be an expectation that everyone's going to make you know a huge amount of money writing about food. I mean, we should. We should. Everyone should be paid better. But it's but. journalism. It's incredibly competitive. And also, we, we the landscape of advertising and media in general, I don't think any journalist is expecting to make much money these days. Right. But um, I wanted to bring up all these topics about, you know, strong opinions because mm-hmm. you speak, you and your co-host, uh, Chris, aka Shit Food Blogger, mm-hmm. uh, hosting a cool podcast called Carb Face Podcast. And Tell me a little bit about that. I, I, what was the genesis of that show, and and really, what's your goal with it? Because it's so eclectic and and fucking weird, <laughs> straight up weird and and addictive. Well, it's a really thank addictive you. show. Yeah. Uh, the genesis was uh, I had done an interview on another podcast. Uh, I forget what even what it was called now, but I was oh, it's called Salt of the Earth. I'm not sure if they're still making it, but it was uh, an interview show about people's jobs. And Chris heard me on that. And I guess we had like he's friends with many people on Twitter uh, because he's got a very dynamic and and sometimes very aggressive and confrontational um, Twitter handle shit food blogger. So we had become friends through that. And he reached out and said, you know, I listened to it. I I like the way that you talk. And would you ever want to do a podcast? And I was like, no. You know, <laughs> initially, immediately. Like, yeah. No. It's just like, I don't, I don't have time for that. And, you know, I'm often a like say no first person and then sometimes reconsider. Um, and he kind of talked me into it after a while or we, you know, we were, I don't know. I was, I was intrigued, but I thought, you know, who am I and what, whatever. It just didn't seem appealing to me. But we eventually um, agreed to meet and then to just kind of try out talking on the mic. And we spent about a year actually developing the thing and recording and sort of practicing being together. And it turned out, I mean, right away, we had great um, chemistry in terms of our senses of humor and bouncing off each other. Um, And I think we had a lot of the same references and the things that we found funny. Um, So that's how it came about. I mean, it was very much just like, well, this is fun. Uh, I don't know if we'll ever, you know, we still, I mean, it's, it's, it's not something that we've made any money on. In fact, it's cost us money. But um, the, the high two bucks haven't come in yet? No, we do not have any sponsors. Listener, uh, there's an ongoing gag uh, slash investigative report about high two that you need to catch up with. There's, there's a bit of an arc. It's, it's actually, I think, evolving, you'd say. I think so. It's not I really mean, a completed arc. It's a yeah. I mean, I think we sort of hit our high water mark when the uh, two people who work for Hai Chu came in and, and were our guests on the show. They brought us a ton of swag, and we sort of got some of the backstory on on Hai Chu, um, which is a which is a chewy candy made in Japan that seems to be making huge inroads here in the states. And I had never tried it before. Chris brought it in one day because we often have candy when we're recording. And I just kind of fell in love with it, and it's 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 delicious and and weird and great. So we talk about it a lot. They are not sponsored. We don't have any sponsors yet, um, and I don't know if we ever will. Um, I think you will. Although it would be great, you know. You but I, you know, you you do you do make some trade offs when you have sponsors. I think. Yeah. Lori, last question. We ask all of our guests if you could publish your dream cookbook, what would it be? Oh well. Um, I sort of feel like I did with Appetites, uh, the book that I wrote with Tony uh, that came out two years ago. Um, it was, you know, it was very, very much Tony's vision, but I had a lot of 
input into it and the the process of making the weird photos mm-hmm. and helping to write the very personal and funny and bizarre um, head notes. Uh, the whole process was a dream. So to to uh, your own no, project, we'll, my we'll, own we'll separate project. the two because okay. I think right. this interview we've learned there's many sides to you and you yeah. had your Tony world but then you also have your own world so let's talk about i knew the awful book kind of got scuttled early on yeah. but like let's what, what really what would, what would be my dream i mean well, the things excited. that i <laughs> the things that i well you know there was a there was my my beloved uh uh poor man's blintzes uh that you guys uh highlighted in a, in a story by it was it george reynolds yeah george. um shout out george in the uk he he wrote a great piece about gross was it gross foods yeah. like things that you make for yourself that are kind of comfort foods that you wouldn't serve to guests or you're a little bit embarrassed about so um you know i would be happy to sort of put together a, a it would be probably more of a pamphlet than a cookbook you know the things that i do like that that are kind of gross like the other night i made chocolate oatmeal which um is just take us through that please it's i mean it is so basic it's uh it's oatmeal and i always cook oatmeal in the microwave and i hear people say oh, instant pot makes the best oatmeal well come on that's, that's a lot it's a lot huge. of effort it's it takes, a lot of apparatus yeah and it takes a minute a minute and a half in the microwave yeah. so it was just it was my standard quaker not quick cook but regular rolled oats uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the brand, but I feel like Quaker uh, and oats we, are pretty we, synonymous. Yeah, it's, it's like Xerox, Kleenex, Kleenex exactly. Uh, so it was just uh, some some. Oh, I like to just mix the oats with some water and some salt. Put them in the microwave for a minute, and then take it out and stir it. And then I added in some uh, just grocery store uh, cocoa powder and some Truvia because <laughs> I'm trying to eat less sugar and a splash of almond milk. And uh, and that's it. And it's you know it's it's gross. that was like a real Ruth Reuschel voice right there. What? And that's it. Oh, is it? I loved it. You like? Oh no. No, no. In like the best way possible. Okay. I didn't mean to bust the. Um. It's fun. I mean, she's great, but I, I feel like she's you know she, the whole Ruth Bourdain thing. I feel like she's been she's been parodied up. Yeah. Uh, it, it's you know it's it's your chocolate without having to you know without eating like a sleeve of Oreos. Uh-huh. Um. But it looks gross. I used to be able to f- give it to my kid for breakfast, and then at some point he like came to his senses and was like, this is disgusting. I'm not eating this. Well, Lori, like, please do the gross cookbook. It, a pamphlet, cookbooks are pamphlets these days. It's you can, true. You can do it as a PDF. That's true. <laughs> thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Here's Ryan Angula and Doug Kroll live at Books Are Magic. Excellent turnout. Everybody, thank you for coming out in this weather. Amazing. I just want to give a little personal anecdote. I uh, when, French, when Buttermilk Channel was opening over 10 years ago, I met you. You were there like sawdust time. You were there when there was like when there was like sawhorses and things being built. And that was 10 years ago. It was. And man, I was just struck about how cool you were. Like, I just love talking to you about food. We talked for like... I was just exhausted. I was really, really... T- I was actually asleep while we were talking. You, you, it was an exhausting build-out, but, I mean, 10 fucking years running a restaurant. Like, that's like 50 years, right? In, in like, real years. Yeah, kind of... It feels like, like having a kid in that, like, it flies so quickly, and also you can't remember anything before that started. What, what do you remember about those first days oh buttermilk channel at buttermilk channel remember painting walls 
uh, I really did a nice job on the brick. Remember, I had scrubbed the brick and sealed it. I was really proud of that. Yeah, I, 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 I tested it the other it day. It's still done. sealed. And uh, I did that. What were some of the biggest hardships that you went through to make that restaurant happen, Buttermilk Channel, ten years ago? But it was so easy. There were no hardships. <laughs> I mean, it was like, you know, yeah, really difficult getting the place built when you have no money and no skills and no experience. Uh, but then we were so fortunate right from the beginning. People came, you know, just like people came tonight, despite the fact that we're in the middle of nowhere in this little tiny sleepy neighborhood. Uh, people came right from the beginning. So I feel really very fortunate. About it really that. was a little different of a neighborhood 10 years ago down down past fourth place. I mean, it was it was a beautiful neighborhood, but it, and it still is a very quiet neighborhood. So we really need people to come from further away, and we got them to come from further away. Um, Ryan, biggest victory uh, from this period? Oh, just uh, the response to the food. Yeah, that was pretty great. The fact that people really, really embraced it right off the bat, and even like even like the New York community as a whole, like we we got a New York Times review. Like three months after we opened, it was in February. We opened in yeah. November, and and for the New York Times at that point to do a review of a Brooklyn restaurant, it was kind of a big deal. Yeah. So if you got one, even if you got like no stars, it was still kind of like cool. Like they were like, oh, they recognize that this place is here, and we got a, a pretty good review. We got a, a nice little one star review. A nice that was, little one yeah, star. There know, were some fr- quibbles though. I remember seeing you at a Chase Bank one time, like maybe like a week after the review came out. I was like. What do you think it's about it? It's not easy to read negative things about yourself yeah. in the New York Times. But it was we, when he came yeah. in, when we saw we saw Frank Bernie in the dining room, we were like, what's that guy doing here? He can't be reviewing us. Yeah. And he did. But he was. I know. At that time, Ryan was like practically alone in the kitchen, like like him in a dishwasher. And like when I look at what we were, we even had the menu at that time. Like we had, we were so new and had so much to figure out. And then there was the fried chicken moment after that review. I think it was probably six months you got on the Food Network. Is that right? Yeah, that was that was pretty cool. <laughs> that like, that, I mean, that brought a lot of people in. Um, yeah, fried chicken. That. I don't know. When we opened, I was like naive about fried chicken. I thought like, well, that's that's a chicken dish. But it turns out people have very strong feelings about yeah. fried chicken. Fried chicken really brings people out. I thought like roasted chicken, fried chicken. But it, well, this it was, was also like like er, like two thousand nine when fried chicken was having a ser- like southern food was having like a it, serious. It was moment. having a moment. Um, but chicken and waffles hadn't. It was just starting. Like it's now it's like everywhere, right? You can find yeah. you can find that combination almost everywhere. But at that moment, I had played with it a little bit at Stan Social, um, but then it really took off when we when we did it at Buttermilk. Um, and the only reason why fried chicken is pretty much on the menu is because when uh, when Doug found the space, it had a full built out kitchen in the back, yeah. so the equipment was there, um, and there were six burners, a griddle, a grill, and two fryers. And I was like, well, I need something. To, I need an entree to come out of the fryer to make this work. And I was like, oh, I'll do fried chicken and waffles. You know, if it doesn't work, we'll change it later right. on. But while we're getting our feet wet, I'll do that. And, and there it is. That was, that was the impetus. To <laughs> I mean, put this, like, yeah, it's pretty simple. It's good equipment that you have. He's <laughs> downplaying funny. his genius. But, but. Okay, let's, what, what makes it so special? And you, you write about this in Kindness and Salt in your book, which we'll get to. But what makes your fried chicken so special? You've been asked this like I know one thousand times, but let's yeah, I think do just keeping time. it keeping it simple. You know, every, there's like a million recipes for it, right? That they play with the marinade and the brine. Some people do it in like sweet tea now. You know, people add a lot of stuff to the buttermilk. We kept it just very, very. I don't know if this is the right word, honest or whatever. Um, it's just good chicken, buttermilk, thyme. You know, and then a lot of 
pepper in the uh, in the flour. Pep- you know pepper, I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, pepper, yeah. yeah. Um, and that was just from reading. You know, I, I didn't really have a ton of experience with fried chicken when we opened. Um, but whenever I don't know about something, I just read yeah. as many recipes as I can find, and then I come up with the best one. Now you have sure. so much fried chicken experience. I have a lot of I have a lot of fried. I've cooked fried chicken in like fields. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 pretty. You cooked funny. a lot of fried chicken in fields. Yeah. <laughs> we did smorgasbord for and a while. in Tokyo. We'll, we'll get to that too. Little teaser. So oh, you let's go back. You said you said uh, San Social. You referred to the restaurant you worked at prior to opening Buttermilk Channel, right and you that. worked at Blue Water Grill in, in in other restaurants as well. Yeah, I was like managing restaurants that couldn't be more different from exactly. what this place is just like 400 square feet restaurants with 70 waiters and union square and ten thousand people a day you'd never see again and this is a different beast different but what did you bring this, this was like, my question is like what did you bring to buttermilk channel then later french louis that you guys learned at these at these bigger i mean stand social and blue water grill are fucking huge restaurants they're massive and they do really well um, what did you bring to the table and that you write about in the book? Cause there's a lot of, there's a lot of writing in the book about hospitality and, and, in the story of restaurants. Yeah. I knew we wanted to bring a very personal, warm, genuine style of hospitality to our restaurants. Uh, and we got that. I didn't realize how personal it would end up being. And that's what the, what the friends and neighbors part of the cookbook sure. is about is it, it's such a small town down here in Carroll Gardens in Borham Hill. And, uh, everyone gets all mixed up with each other and that's that's what that part of the book is about and that's that was a big that was a big lesson for me is that this is going to be really personal and when you have 10 waiters instead of 70 waiters uh it's you know it's not about the employee handbook it's about the one-on-one one on one. and from the food perspective i mean stan social was doing like comfort like higher end comfort is that a- yeah and i mean and it was all shareable small plates um so it was cool because i had a lot of freedom to do like whatever i want like anything that i wanted any cuisine but um, but at the time when I met Doug, we really had this idea about American Bistro. Like, what does that mean? Like, what can we do? And um, and we were both pretty much on the same page. That like, I really wanted to make like soup again. Uh, I hadn't made soup in like three years. I mean, I made yeah. like, soup dumplings, um, but I which had, were really but, good. But yeah, they're, they're still yeah, great. yeah, yeah. Um, but I I hadn't like served anyone like a bowl of soup. I know that sounds weird, maybe, but um. I remember saying that to one of the owners of Stan Social. He's like, why are you leaving? I was like, well, you know, I haven't really made soup in a few years. <laughs> but it was like this idea of like, I want to get back to like roasting whole chickens and having people eat that. Like, you know, like serving someone like a full-size steak, not this little like bite-sized steak. You know, it was it was cool for the time that I was there. But like, you know, we saw this neighborhood and we felt that the neighborhood needed opening buttermilk channel the neighborhood needed a bistro which is a place that you know you can go to multiple times a week a place that you can have a lot of different kinds of experiences there you can bring your family you can come back for a date you can go to brunch after having a crazy night before which people do there's some brunch yeah yeah we'll get to that (laughs) a little there's a little brunch why has it worked because everything you've said is true of course but a lot of restaurants have like hospitality and have great roasted chicken but as we know fans of this restaurant it's it's been part of our lives for 10 years we can't say that about many new york city restaurants like good restaurants close all the time what like what's the special sauce pun intended that's msg <laughs> you gotta put the msg in everything it makes people crazy <laughs> I mean, on the record you know it's all about the msg okay ryan's making really you know consistent wonderful food with 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 no tricks that's that's the stuff people like to eat, and we are really nice to them. So yeah. <laughs> maybe that's it. 
We got we got a saying in the restaurant that says well, we talk to uh, waiters and I teach them this when I'm interviewing them is be nice, don't be gross. These are the main things you got to know. We got to be nice to people, and that's real, genuine niceness. Yeah. That's like unambiguous niceness that anyone can see. It's like a big smile, you know, so that everyone who comes feels welcome. And then you just got to not be gross, you know. Mm-hmm. Just do not gross. There's so many ways to be gross. There are There's different rules. Different rules for the food. Yeah, who just <laughs> be delicious and be hot? Be de- yeah. Okay, so uh, one part of the success though has been some some clientele that you know pulls headlines. So let's go back to New Year's Eve. Um, who could you be talking about? Back. Who would we be talking about? Well, actually, so you do usually. Has anyone been to the New Year's Eve at Buttermilk Channel? Uh, yeah, like it's like all the audience here because oh, it's amazing. Wow. That's awesome. Been several times. I might. Are you doing it again this year? Oh yeah, I, think I might do it this year. We were there that night, but we were at the six o'clock. So there's a six that was a, not the one to be at. Yeah, we were, there's a six and a nine. So the six happens beautiful. Like there's probably like seven hundred balloons in the in the building. Definitely some foie on the menu, which is typically not what you're doing. You're not doing like foie gras. It's not part of your ethic. You're doing chicken liver mousse. Yeah, we fancy it up a little bit. We fancy it up. So we leave, and then I get a text from you like. 30 minutes later about who showed up. So talk about that right now. Yeah, we're getting phone calls from certain security people. Jay-Z and Beyonce are on the way. <laughs> and we're like, oh, yeah. Jay-Z and Beyonce. Who, who, which table do we need to kick out to let these people in? Because they are coming to the restaurant. That would be you. Yeah, my wife lost her table. Uh, you had a table for the nine. So you, you found out like an hour before? Yeah, they, you know... I've given her my card many, many times, but she doesn't need my card. <laughs> she, she can just show up. But the awesome, the awesome thing about this was that it wasn't just like a really, it wasn't just a celebrity sighting that day because this was the moment in time when the whole world didn't know whether Beyonce had had her baby yet. So it was actually like legit celebrity news that they were there and she was still pregnant and she was so pregnant and she was so extraordinary and beautiful. And like six hours later, I'm getting calls from like tabloids in Korea. It was like, that was big. And it was really, really wonderful because it got a lot of people to know about us and it got all the people excited about us. And uh, I mean, for years, like five years after that, I would have people coming in every day asking about They Beyonce. still do, don't they? Like, where did she sit? I mean, it's tapered off a little bit. It's tapered off a little bit. Yeah, they just, people still get people to come and ask where she sat. So Solange was living in the neighborhood, right? Like, she was on Union. I, I used to see her in the hood all the time. Yeah, they were coming a lot, and they were really nice. Yeah, so they are great. I mean, they are great people. And so tell me a little bit. We won't dwell on this because we got to talk about your book. But what did they order, and what were they like? Come on, fried chicken. Yeah, and they're really? lovely. And they're really, they're, they're really sweet people. They were they're lovely. But yeah, fried chicken. It was chicken and waffles, a half dozen oysters, and the persimmon salad, right? What's a persimmon? Remember? It's like an Asian tomato. <laughs> It seemed for one like for one moment it seemed that that I would be able to dance with Beyonce at midnight, but then like at eleven fifty eight, like a it was like poof, like a cloud, and and they were and they were gone. And they paid to wherever, yeah, they paid. They but, paid but, okay. to wherever they tipped great to wherever they those two are on New Year's Eve is where they went. Probably to play a show somewhere, and they probably had a jet waiting. Right? Is that what you do on New Year's? Eve? I think they That's would just go into her sister's house for New Year's Eve because she was like super pregnant then. I mean, I think I've told that story as many times as you have because I'm like, wow, there's like this cool restaurant neighborhood that. It's did. great when celebrities come in. It makes it's people are excited about it, and they'll never forget the, where where they were when they saw that person. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the recipes because I love the way you write these recipes. The head notes have a lot of personality and and just like anecdotes and stories from the from the rest. And you, but you have some of your greatest hits and uh, a couple in 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 particular. Uh, I'm happy that you shared the secrets. So this chicken liver mousse, I always thought it was red wine, but it's not red wine. It's Calvados, right? That's the 
It's Calvados, yeah. Where, how did that's cool? Well, at first I was using um because it was like I was really like into this, like everything's got to be American because it's American Bistro, and we were using Applejack at first. Like, oh, that's right. Um, Applejack. But Calvados for the the book, it's that's more you can find Calvados anywhere. I think I put like any type of like apple brandy in the recipe or something like that. Um, but just the Calvados because the the chicken liver mousse is made with apples, it just made sense. You know, I could have used regular brandy, but just gave it that a little more sweetness. I love it. And there is some here, by the way, if you haven't had any Brussels food. So try it out. Um, but like that dish and then the soca at French Louis, I just love that. I love that you, you've, you've, you've kind of brought the soca to South Brooklyn, I must say. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where that dish came from. I mean, we had the soca on the menu as a snack. Um, and that Explain was kind what of a soca is in case. Oh, soca is a chickpea flatbread. It's kind of like a chickpea crepe, but a little different. It's traditionally made in, like, wood-fired ovens. Um, we do ours a little different in, like, a pan. Um, and with our, like, salamander or, like, a really hot oven. Um, and we had it as a snack on the menu um, where you could just get the small soca. But it seemed like such a great vehicle for lots of stuff, so I just made it really big and then put all the stuff on it. Like uh, beet hummus, which is – you can try some right now. Um, and there's, like, braised grains and – and uh, greens and grains, uh, lemon yogurt, olives. It hasn't changed too much since uh, since it's like put first. Put an egg on it, possibly. Oh, for brunch, yeah, for yeah. Brunch, definitely yeah. put an egg on it for brunch. Um, that. Yeah, that one. That, I like that one. That's. The, I mean, how many you do a lot of <laughs> those like at, at, at French Louis, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Ten thousand a day. The soca's at every service. Uh, lunch is the base for salads. At dinner, it's our our big yeah. vegetarian entree, and at brunch, it's our it's our nice like savory egg dish. Yeah, I love. I can't wait to make it because I've I've tried to think through in my head and tried to play around with some ingredients at home. How do you it, make it? It takes a little practice. Yeah, um, hot pan, with, right? Yeah, hot pan. Your broiler on high. Yeah. You know, you might get a little smoke in your apartment. Um, <laughs> when we first started testing it out, as myself and Ian Alvarez, the first chef de cuisine yeah. at French Louis, and he was the first sous chef at Buttermilk Channel. Um, we just had a night with just him and I in a six-pack and a bunch of soca batter. And we just turned on the ovens high and turned the salamander on, and we figured out how to do it in that kitchen. And then I think I figured out how to do it at home. It's in, it's in the it's You in need the a six-pack. <laughs> you might yeah. need, so you might need a six-pack. missing ingredient is a six-pack. <laughs> six-pack, yeah. <laughs> okay, so it takes how, a little trial and error. Let's how do you make these recipes work then? for the home because that's always the challenge with these books like they're not because it reads really well like it reads like it's a home book which is cool i mean that was that was probably the hardest part like getting into like how would i cook this on my apartment stove that doesn't really get so hot you know what i mean um so there's if you read a lot of the recipes a lot of them call for like cast iron pans and these heavy bottom pans because they hold heat really well for the type of food that we're trying to cook um and luckily, we had a great team of uh, of recipe testers. We like, you know, Doug like enlisted our regulars and sent them recipes and family and and they somebody tested in here tested recipes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Susanna tested recipes. We had an, an army of friends and neighbors yeah. test on it. It was that was really cool because some of them stuck to the program like yeah. really literally, and then you see whether like that works. And other people were like, "Yeah, I didn't do that. That didn't work for me. I did something else." And, yeah. and you get to see that's also real. Yeah. And so it was kind of cool because like like real people at home tried out the recipes and they came back with with pretty good results so we're like okay that oh. works you know results were good yeah, right. were good. <laughs> you got a little future in this yeah. cookbook game yeah there weren't too many there weren't too many adjustments there aren't too many errors 
Yeah. I talked to one friend who I'll definitely not name who who says that he, every time he goes into a bookstore and his cookbook is there, he has to open to like page 106 and, and change yeah. tablespoon to teaspoon <laughs> just as a public service. I know who that is. <laughs> we haven't really given French Louis that much love, I feel. We've we've really talked about Buttermilk Channel, but like, wh- why did you decide to open French Louis? Like, what did you, What was missing in your life? French wine for me. Okay, right. We both went to Paris around that time, and there's <laughs> really exciting yeah, bistros in Paris. I think you time. went one year, and then I went the next year. Like and we were just like, oh, this is cool. Um, this, this food might work. Yeah. might be all right. And at first, we were kind of like, oh, French steakhouse, whatever that means. We didn't know what that meant. Um, but that was kind of kicking around for a minute. But then we're like, oh, steakhouse, you know, it's not, it's not so inviting to, an, to, the, to a neighborhood. You know, it's kind of like a special occasion, steakhouse. Yeah. Um, so there's, that's why there's like a heavy steak. There's like that steak frites section on the menu. That's like, that's my steakhouse. You put like, that in like that the day before thing. we opened. We had this steakhouse thing in there and we were like, why, we, why, why isn't this steak frites? Wasn't that what everyone wants? Yeah, I think I had it something weird. It was like, yeah. it, it translates to like hot meats. Vian showed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Vian showed might not be a winner. Stuffy. We're like, but yeah, we had that both. Lasted, the... That only lasted about 24 hours. Thing. We'd both been to all these awesome new bistros in Paris where, you know, these chefs who could be making this really high-end tasting menu food were instead taking classic bistro dishes and just making them awesome. So you'd be like, wow, that's what beef bourguignon should be. You know, and that's what Coco Van should be like. So Ryan did that. Yeah. I was like, oh, I can do this cool and like using like American ingredients. Like the snails come with grits, you know. Mm -hmm. It's not forced though. It doesn't feel like you're doing A plus B. I mean, it really does feel French to me. Yeah, that's what Doug always says, that it reads really, f- it reads more really French f- than I think. Yeah. It's actually pretty French. Yeah. It really is pretty French. Yeah. So yeah. I'm always like, oh, it's French-American. Or next it's up American is Italian French Steve. Steve. That's Ryan's next That's Ryan's yeah. next idea. Wait, French that's Louis, not the Italian, Italian Stevie. It's, uh, yeah. Uh, that so, was my last question, but we're going to go get to that now? Okay. <laughs> Italian Steve's funny because there are there are a couple of this, <laughs> these two sous chefs, Andrew and Sean, that were like frickin' frack at Buttermilk Channel. <laughs> and when we opened French Louis... They were like, oh, what's next? Italian Steve, they just said it. And I was like, and it's just been like a running joke for five years. Like, I still like message them on Instagram, like, Italian Steve's coming. Get ready. <laughs> I mean, let's do it. Hey, everyone likes Italian food. Can't do it with, no, with Frankie's next door, though. You got to pick a new neighborhood. No, not yeah, in that, not yeah, in that somewhere neighborhood. Else. No. Somewhere else. I wanted to hear about Tokyo um, a little under the radar. I feel like you haven't really like put any press releases out which is a cool thing, but you have kind of a growing little empire happening in Tokyo. I've been making the joke that my feet are big in Japan because my feet really are big in Japan. I I went to this restaurant where you take off your shoes and there was this like shoe cubby and it was like, no way my, my shoes were going in that cubby. (laughs) It's uh, I've been, I've been a little reluctant to tell people because I don't know. I've told, told some customers and I feel like I, they get this look in their eye like, Oh, I thought you were this cute neighborhood restaurant and you're really this giant international thing or something, you know? But uh, it's so exciting. It's wonderful. And the place is beautiful. So talk about what, what neighborhood, what is it, and how many are you going to open? It's in Harajuku, which is like the craziest neighborhood in Tokyo and a yeah. beautiful place. Uh, and I hope they open a bunch of them. I just want to keep going. We, we just want to keep going. It's so wonderful there. We had a blast. I mean, the food is so, so great in Tokyo. We were out yeah. till like 5 a.m. every night just eating. And they did a great job. The food is exactly the same as it is at Buttermill Channel in Brooklyn, except smaller because they cannot even begin. <laughs> they cannot even begin to like confront a whole plate of our fried chicken. Right. 
but it's and the, the kitchen is beautiful too. I mean, I'm sure it's it's really well run. But were there any challenges in sourcing and trying to make the translation? Uh, there was, yeah. I love, yeah. Some ingredients were different. Um, like French fries were were kind of a thing we had to figure out. In what way? Um, the potatoes are different. They have a higher sugar content. Um, and it took like one of the higher up man. Like I don't know what Mr. Sato is. He's like runs half the company. He was like, you need to use this potato. And I was like, oh, okay. Where were you hiding and that I, potato? Yeah, like, why didn't you tell me this <laughs> earlier? Um, and uh, and then he was right. Their eggs are great. Um, their eggs are beautiful. Yeah, their eggs are beautiful. There's a lot of great products. Um, but it wasn't, you know, I mean, a lot of a lot of stuff can get imported. Buttermilk was a funny thing because they don't use a lot of buttermilk. And we use a lot of buttermilk in everything. Yeah. Um, I mean, it goes in like... A lot, of, like a lot of recipes that you wouldn't think of, like some of the vinaigrettes get buttermilk. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't too bad. There it's wasn't a lot too much more loss in tra- translation. Explanation. I mean, if you were anyone in this room were to go to Buttermilk Channel for the first time and look at the menu, you would see everything pretty familiar. And people, a lot of people come to their restaurants if they haven't traveled or and see and nothing is familiar. So it's a lot. Of, those those waiters have a lot of explaining to yeah. to do, and they do like all the stories that. That we have all the stories behind the dishes and all the names and they, been written down in a it's note been card. Written down and they are saying it in Japanese and and I don't know what they're that saying. Is cool and probably very weird. And and pictures help. It's not a weird thing to have a menu with pictures on it. Yeah, yeah, Japan, yeah. which I think I think you've you've pushed. That yeah, very right. pro picture. <laughs> you like open maybe in Osaka and some other cities too around the country. Yeah, yeah. No, we're like next up is um is uh, Yokohama. Yokohama, cool. Which they told me is the Boston of Japan. I don't know how they thought that would land. Well, that's cool. I think that's a really amazing opportunity. And I could see why people would maybe think you're owned by a major conglomerate, but you're not. The tough question to answer in Tokyo, because I was being interviewed there, is like, so why would you open in Tokyo? And that's difficult because it's like the greatest food city in the world. So you feel like you're saying, well, this place has all the awesome food. Naturally, you should have mine. But uh, they really are, like, everyone is really interested in food there, like, everyone. And they're very tuned into, like, specific differences between, like, they see our fried chicken and they say, this is, like, no fried chicken I've ever had because they love the uh, the um, the vinegar maple syrup sauce. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Like, everyone, I'm, everyone I met could tell you the difference between, like, the ramen that is served at, like, 100 different places. They're very, like, they're they're really interested in trying new things. Thank you so much, guys, for joining the Taste Podcast. Appreciate it. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis, studio recordings by Pat Stango, theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>